Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. President-elect Donald Trump has assembled a team of generals to fill key posts in his national security team. Former Army General Mike Flynn is his national security advisor. Marine General John Kelly has been tapped to serve as Homeland Security Chief. And of course, recently retired Marine General James Mattis has been nominated as Secretary of Defense. Now, top military brass have served in civilian roles. Most notably, Colin Powell served as George W. Bush's Secretary of State. But never before have so many generals been tapped to serve at once in top positions. And this is out of the ordinary precisely because the American political system has historically shunned it for reasons that my guest Alice Hunt friend describes. Alice Friend studies civil-military relations. She's currently writing her PhD thesis on the topic. She's a former official in the Pentagon and is currently both a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and an adjunct fellow at the Center for a New American Security. And she offers what I find to be a very nuanced take on the kind of challenge or even threat to the American democratic system that is posed when military takes on a greater role in civilian political life. She also discusses the kinds of policy implications that result from when generals are put in charge of civilian institutions. And this is something that political scientists like Alice have studied fairly intently. Now, I'm not saying, nor do I want to suggest that there is a coup or anything like that in in the near-term future, that's not going to happen. But there are subtle ways that having the military in domestic politics changes or even erodes certain democratic institutions that have been built up over the last 240 years. So this episode is part of a a longer series, a broader series that I promised I would bring you just after the election, which is trying to figure out the implications of Donald Trump to world order, to uh, American foreign policy, what it means, what changes we might expect, what might stay the same. And, you know, having all these generals serve in top civilian posts is something that's profoundly different than what has historically been the case before. So I was very glad to speak with really the the perfect person to address this question, which is Alice Friend, who not only studies this topic academically, uh, but lives it as a national security professional in Washington, D.C., As always, please feel free to get in touch with me. I do love hearing from you. I know I keep saying that, but I say it because it's true. You can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the contact form to email me or just hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg and let me know what's on your mind. And now here is Alice Hunt Friend. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Um, when you talk about civil-military relations, 
you can talk about it in two contexts. Uh, you can first talk about it sort of in an, in an academic sense that particularly discusses uh, democracies and the development of democracy. And usually there, you're talking about in developing democracies, ensuring that civilian control of the military uh, prevents creeping authoritarianism, and in particular, prevents coups. So you'll see a lot of research on developing democracies and coup prevention and mm. what makes coups happen. Right? Yeah, there's like a whole volume of academic research around the idea of, of, of what they call coup-proofing, which is right, like a, great, exactly. a great term. Um, in the U.S. context, because we have this very long, uh, not only tradition of civil civilian control of the military, which I can get into more later, but also just no history of coups, right? 240 years of no coups. Um, we talk more about what is termed undue influence of the military. Um, and then we also talk about, and my particular interest is in politicization of the military, um, which is a hard word to pronounce. Um, and I will talk more about that later as well. So, um, mm -hmm. And then in the context of, of U.S. history, of course, there's been uh, some writing, particularly Rosa Brooks had uh, an interesting and contrary to my view, piece in foreign policy on what the founders thought about uh, civilian control of the military and how they wove it uh, into the idea of checks and balances in this system. So you can go all the way back to the Federalist Papers if you really want to geek out and read Federalist Number 8, I believe it is, and Hamilton, our favorite founding father at the moment, uh, writing about this idea of the danger of a standing military. Uh, and then um, also Madison in Federalist 51, writing about the importance of checks and balances in general, not just uh, checks between the military and the civilian, but between different factions uh, in society and between different parts of the government. Um, so you can look at, at civilian control of the military and civil military relations uh, in those two lenses, both very specific civilians versus military, military versus civilians, and then also in this broader American um, historical inheritance of, of checks and balances within the government so that no one faction, as the founders called it, uh, has undue influence, as a civil military relations specialist would call it, over the government. So so let's talk about ways in which that undue influence might manifest itself or has manifested itself in, in modern times. So um, now we get into the idea of professional expertise and its utility for political purposes. Um, and this is where my personal critique is on the civilian side. Um, and I think a lot of the commentary that's been in the press uh, has has sort of been based on the unspoken assumption that the military itself has an interest in becoming political and that it has an interest uh, in sort of running foreign policy for the United States. I don't think that's the case. I don't see evidence of that. What I do see evidence of, and what, again, there's a lot of academic literature on, is that be precisely because the military is so professional and because it has a unique expertise that you cannot get unless you've served in the military, um, its advice and its uh, opinions, right, the military is a corporate body, is politically useful. And it also lends political legitimacy uh, to whoever is the beneficiary of that advice or to whichever side uh, in, in policy disputes that the military 
might adhere, mm-hmm. right? It, it would seem that, you know, of the many institutions of government we have, Congress, the presidency, the courts, the military stands apart as still being sort of revered by the American public. Absolutely. And in fact, Corey Shockey and uh, General Mattis, uh, the, the president-elect's nominee for Secretary of Defense, uh, did some recent work on this and indeed found that uh, among the many uh, crumbling institutions when it comes to, to trust in government, uh, the military is saved from that. The American public still holds the United States military in very high regard, as well it should. Um, but this does mean that if the United States military is seen to approve of or disapprove of any particular politician or any particular political choice or any particular policy, that tends to mean that the American public is going to view with favor or disfavor um, whatever that person or policy is. So to that end, one if, if one were, were a keen politician, like I think Donald Trump is, um, one might appoint a number of generals to top cabinet posts and high-profile cabinet posts in order to demonstrate that um, although these people are serving in their individual capacity, the fact that they have you know the GEN next to their names suggests that the military is sort of endorsing the, the, the president. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's quite a thing to say, but I, I do see evidence of the president-elect doing that. I think one of the things that I noticed early on, besides that he um, clearly, and lots of people have, have noted this, he clearly sort of relishes uh, being around generals, and he, um, you know, he really likes to refer to General Mattis's nickname, Mad Dog, and really sort of emphasize his military background, right? Um, He also, in his interview with the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, um, made a point to say, and I don't actually know whether or not this is true, he made a point to say that I think 85% was the number he he gave, 85% of military voters voted for him. And he wanted to draw that out. Um, And that's concerning, right? I mean, if the president is trying to say that this supposedly neutral body um, this tool of the state that is that is loyal to the state, that is not loyal to a party, that is not loyal to a particular individual, but instead is loyal to the country, and therefore uh, a sense to the commander in chief, whoever it is, whoever's elected, to say that 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 group of people is particularly loyal to one individual is is problematic. Now, I don't, you know, we don't know that it's true. Um, but the fact that he wants to to traffic on that loyalty, um, I think, is really problematic for how other politicians uh, view the military going forward, how the military views itself, and how we think of our military's role in our domestic politics, which traditionally has been neutral. It has been neutrality. Um, and I, I guess what response might might sort of the military take? Would they like want to ingratiate themselves with like a, a party in one way or the other? Is that, so, is that like the challenge? Something I wrote in my piece is that that is a danger. Now, again, um, Shockey and Mattis um, found in their research, and Corey Shockey wrote this up on foreign policy as well, that the good news is that uh, the United States military has traditionally been very good about policing itself and about instituting its own standards of professionalization, which includes uh, above and foremost, rather, this idea of military subordination to civilian authority. 
Um, so our military polices itself a lot. But that does mean that if the military is policing itself, that we're sort of leaving it up to them, which, again, I get back to this is civilians responsibility, even more so than it is the military's. And so we have to treat this kind of thing very, very seriously and think very, very carefully about whether or not things that we say or things that we do, in fact, are politicizing the military. So to take, for example, the piece that I wrote, um, you know, Mattis is only, I believe, four years out of retirement. Statutorily, the Secretary of Defense, if he is a veteran uh, and a, a senior officer, needs to have been retired for at least seven years. The purpose of this is to allow, as I wrote, the individual and the service to move beyond each other. What you don't want is for the services to start thinking to themselves, gee, we can grow our own to become Secretary of Defense. And then we have the ear of the Secretary of Defense mm -hmm. and also this professional background and this affinity uh, and this loyalty and this perspective, right? So, so the idea is that since General Mattis is a, a recently uh, retired G Marine general, that there is the worry that he would favor the interests of the Marines over, say, the Air Force or the Navy or or the Army. And you know, we should point out that that uh, um, a lot of sort of the history of, of of like the military, not only in the United States but around the world, is is based on sort of each branch of the military competing with each other for resources and for you know yeah. political power. Yep. Um, I remember even like in grad school reading this analysis of the outbreak of World War II of Japan's decision to bomb Pearl Harbor as an outcome of like uh, of 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 internal fights within the Japanese military branches, mm. um, and and so that you know the, the the idea is that right that that the um, differing branches have differing priorities, and if a general of one branch becomes the sec def, they might prioritize that branch over the others. Right, as you allude, interservice rivalry has traditionally been one means of civilian control over the military particularly when it comes to uh, rivalry over budget share. Um, and I think, you know, what I keep stressing is, I think probably Mattis himself will handle this at least better than any other recently retired general you could think of, um, because he has thought very deeply about civil military relations and civilian control of the military. Indeed, he just wrote a book about it. But the the point is really the precedent. The point is, whether or not he favors the Marine Corps in decisions as Secretary of Defense, and, you know, there's, there's no evidence to suggest that he absolutely would or absolutely wouldn't. But the point is more, you know, folks in the Air Force might start saying, well, if this is now a pathway, you know, I, as a two-star general, for example, should perhaps start building my contacts, among, you know, in one party or the other, perhaps my career will not end when I retire from the military and I can have these broader political ambitions. Um, and the Air Force or the Army, you know, or the Navy may think as an institution, you know, we can start growing leaders to, in fact, run the whole department. Mm -hmm. Again, that may not happen, but that is the kind of thing that gets introduced into the equation if this becomes a trend, if we sort of regularly see presidents naming recently retired generals to top posts in both national security and, you know, perhaps someday non-national security positions, it's just going to obviously become part of the career pathway for some senior military officers. 
And we just have to think about what that does to the institution and whether or not it incentivizes future senior officers um, to think about themselves as political actors, not just as as professionals in a military sense. But what's what's like the threat if um, military officials like that two star general does ingratiate himself with a politician who eventually is a rising star, becomes president, maybe appoints him as as secret as sec def. Like what what is the the real danger to to like the American Republic even? So the realistic near term problem with that is that then you might start having uh, senior military advisors and military advice uh, come through the filter of either outright partisan interests, um, or even more likely, uh, simply trying to please whoever it is that you think might be in a position in the future to appoint you to something, right? And so then military advice um, starts getting strained through not just what makes the most sense operationally and strategically, but also what makes the most sense for this particular military institution, right, this Mm -hmm. service, and what makes sense for uh, a military advisor, him or herself, when they think about their own career Mm -hmm. ambitions, right? That probably happens a little bit now, but I would imagine if in the scenario that we just discussed, it would just be more heightened, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think, and I think that's part of the reason why you want to think through these kinds of appointments really, really carefully. Again, I think Mattis has thought about this a lot himself, and I doubt that he will do anything personally to encourage any of these problems. Um, but the the sheer fact of him being in this position, the sheer fact of General Kelly perhaps being over at Homeland Security, um, and then of course Flynn is not the first active duty officer, or I'm sorry, not the first officer to be um, in the National Security mm-hmm. Advisor position. But again, all of these generals just recently retired. And so they still have a lot of really live connections um, to other generals that mm-hmm. they grew up in the service with. They served in these wars. They led um, still active duty officers and enlisted in the field. Um, and now they're, they're in a position of sort of new authority um, over a much wider span of control in the government. Well, the point, one point that you make in your piece is like, it's not dissimilar from the, the protections, the, the legal um, obligations of individuals who have recently come from like the private sector, like going from Goldman Sachs to the treasury department, they might be seen as favoring, you know, the interests of like Goldman Sachs, just as, you know, Mattis might be seen as favoring the interests of, of the Marines or, or Flynn, the army. Um, right. That's, Something that's I write like, is, mm-hmm. is that this is this is only human, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is, and this is only a standard concern for any group of people coming from any sort of corporate body. You're always going to wonder, mm-hmm. are you able to shed the interests of your old institution, right? And that's a reasonable thing to ask of any person coming out of any situation, um, and suddenly being put in authority over those people. Um, you know, are you going to be able to be? impartial, right? It, you know, it's going to be a trick for Mattis to be truly impartial amongst the services, right? I think he's going to be able to pull it off, but it, it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be hard for, for future recently retired uh, general and flag officers to do the same thing. Um, you know, one 
question I have is, is whether um, the the sort of position of having a general as head of SecDef is just fundamentally different or more challenging than having a, a general the head of, of a totally civilian agency like the State Department, as, as Colin Powell was, or the Homeland Security, which, you know, these are all civilian law enforcement agencies under the, the control of, of Homeland Security. So you don't have the kind of parochial um, service interests um, in, in mind as, as much, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I think I've only served at the Pentagon myself, so I'm, I'm probably speaking out of turn a little bit. Um, but I think, you know, culturally speaking, uh, folks that come out of really the Pentagon, I think there are civilians that suffer from the same, uh, same issue. Um, the Pentagon's very hierarchical, uh, and, you know, an order is an order for the most part. Um, and so to, to leave this very operational, um, mission oriented, um, sort of salute and execute culture that's very both can do. And also there's a real bias towards action at, at, at the department of defense. Um, I think going into other departments is just a cultural difference for folks that have learned to be leaders in a military context. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, in my opinion, military leaders are some of the best leaders in the world, and they've thought more deeply about leadership than than most, not all, but most civilians you might find. Um, so I think their ability to think deeply about the new challenges of leading a civilian organization is are, is great, but it doesn't mean that there wouldn't still be a challenge there. Um, the other sort of reason to be concerned about you know, more than one or two generals running uh, or being in charge of cabinet level uh, agencies is also simply the idea that diversity of thought is better for policy um, than similar views amongst all the advisors, right? The more debate you have and the more disagreement you have, the better because the more different perspectives are going to be brought up. Um, to have several different individuals who have all had similar operational experiences over the past couple of decades. You know, many of them have, uh, I think Mattis had 40 plus years in the service. Mm -hmm. But, you know, our, our last couple of decades of war, they're going to have sort of not, of course, exactly the same, but they'll have similar perspectives. And they'll be different from somebody who's coming straight out of the business world or someone who's coming out of a law firm or somebody who's mm -hmm. coming out of academia. Like law enforcement. Right. Um, um, and so you just you just lose that diversity a little bit, um, which, again, is not unique to the military. It would be true if we had an entire cabinet of lawyers. Um, but it is something to think about. So, uh, I mean, like bottom line, like how fundamentally challenging is the fact that it looks like we were going to have a, a number of generals, three, at least three generals in, in top NATSEC positions, if not more. I mean, cabinet positions are, are still being rolled out. Um, mm -hmm. how, how actually threatening is this, the fundamental operation of, of U.S. democracy? I mean, should, should people be concerned? I think people should be concerned, first and foremost, about the politicization of the military services. So I don't think, you know, there's some folks out there that are saying wrongly that the more military we have in senior posts, the more militarized our policy will be. I don't think that's quite accurate. Um, for one thing, there's empirical evidence that political scientists have developed um, that that's simply not true, that that 
folks with veteran status are much less likely to use force, in fact, than folks without veteran status. Um, what is true that once we have chosen to use force, veterans tend to want to use more overwhelming force so as to be decisive. But they tend to be much more hesitant about use of the military instrument in the first instance. Um, so what concerns me much more is what I've described, which is this idea that the military services are going to start thinking of themselves um, as political actors, or that the military as a corporate body, you know, perhaps through the joint staff or just culturally um, and societally, um, are going to start thinking of their political role in our democracy. And the reason that's a problem um, is the reason that the founders feared, which is when, when you start to cede control, or let me say this better, when, when the military begins to be a political actor in the system, it is very hard um, for different factions in the government or for the faction that is not, you know, uh, the one that the military may choose to join, right? So, for example... If the military just declared itself or started to, to, to um, proceed as if mo most of them or more of them were Democrats, Republicans would be very concerned by this. Um, and a Republican president wouldn't trust his military as much because he suspected um, that this institution was actually just out to protect the interests of Democrats as mm -hmm. opposed to all Americans, right? If you have a military instrument that you don't trust, then your national defense is is fundamentally undermined. And then that, you can imagine, can ripple forward. None of this happens overnight at all. And again, I think if this turns out to be anomalous and the next round of appointees or the next president or the next several presidents don't do this again, um, probably these concerns subside because, again, folks in the military don't think, oh, there's this other path or, oh, we mm -hmm. need to start exercising our partisan interests. But if this does become a trend, if this has sort of opened the floodgates, um, you know, there are a lot of problematic places it can go. We can, we can go like go the way of Turkey, right, where, where you have the military sees itself as a guarantor of a certain kind of, of domestic political order. I mean, that's the concern. Again, Today's military, it's hard to imagine that being true, but sort of the point is as incentives shift over time and new generations of officers come up in these new realities, and those realities have incentive structures um, that say, if not the military, then no one, you know, to the extent that we start to think of the military as the final bastion of both expertise and national security and also the guarantor of our national security, um, we start to cede an awful lot of power to them, and it would be up to the military itself um, to exercise that power uh, in a circumspect way. And again, as Corey Shockey has pointed out, right now we can count on the military to do that, and then in addition, we also have all of these checks and balances and civilian control, civilian control of the budget, first and foremost. Um, but but various other things. But the tradition of civilian control of the military, if that is something that civilians themselves start to let go um, and start to think of the military as sort of the place where we concede all of our leadership on national security, you know, it may first bleed into non-national security affairs domestically 
And then it just may be that that's the place where we look to leadership all the time. And, you know, again, over time, we can get to a place where there's not the nice bright line we have at the moment between civilian political careers and professional military careers. Uh, Well, Alice, thank you so much for your time. This was fascinating. Thanks, Mark. It was really fun. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Alice. Now, you may have noticed the name Corey Shockey be dropped a couple times in this conversation. She was a guest on this very podcast a couple of years ago, I think episode 41. Corey Shockey discussed her life and career, how she got into this line of work. It was a good one. Go check it out. She was a former advisor to John McCain, if, if I recall correctly. It was a good conversation. Beyond that, have a great day, and we'll see you next time. Bye.